This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone. It's time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the voice of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be evolution. But I want to remind everybody that they should check out evidenceforfaith.com, our website. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And if you like podcasts, you can find our podcasts at iTunes or Double Twist. Also check out our Facebook page and look for the website for ratiochristi.org. And speaking of Ratio Christi, we have a student from Ratio Christi, Stockton College. We have President of the chapter, Casper Oliver. Casper, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Thank you, Keith. Thank you for having me. So, Casper, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you are president of the local chapter, but what are you? What's your major? Well, my major is health science. I used to be a biochem, but um, after three years of biochem, it's kind of got really uh, hectic for me, so I had to switch. I am currently a health science major, and I am. Um, not sure what I really want to do yet, but I'm um, just, you know, following God right now, and hopefully he'll lead me um, to where I need to be and uh, to do his will. Great. Uh, do you want to tell people how you became a Christian? Yeah. Um, before I came to college, I, um, in high school, I my parents, they split up when I was little, and high school was very hectic for me. I um, had a really... Um, bad relationship um with my family at the time and my always looked up to my dad and he always told me you know what it became what it what it was to become a man and it was hard for me um i actually um tried to strive for attention from my family from women and um it just led me to you know be really depressed and um that's how i came to college when i found out um you know about jesus and i started reading into his word and um we went to the bahamas and um, I got baptized, and I never looked back, and um, I've been happy ever since. I needed, I never needed to look um, for attention anywhere else. Great. So was that from Chris, Stockton Christian Fellowship? Yes, Stockton Christian Fellowship. Great. Oh, that's really good. So some students reached out to you. Yeah, yeah. I was actually my roommate. Um, he um, he invited me out, Francisco. So, oh, great. Um, it was a, it, it was a, it was all wonderful. Great. Now, what do you think of the apologetics effort? Rosho Christie's been at Stockton now for about two years. So it's been awesome. I think it's just amazing. It's a great um, tool for Christians to use to solidify their faith. Um, I know for me, um, you know, it was more of faith, you know, something I had to believe in. I didn't know that there was evidence for Christianity. And when I found out about the evidence and um, the history and the science, and the philosophy, um, I just, it just wanted, um, it, it just had this fire in me just to go actually spread the, the um, gospel even more. So um, I'm always debating with people, always talking to people about Jesus now. And it's just, you know, I'm always on fire. People are always saying that I'm always on fire. So it's it's great. I love it. Great. 
All right. Well, we're going to jump into some of the uh, business of the show. I found something, Kirk. Uh, you'll like this. This was – it's not really a news item, but it is a blog that was on a website, Reasons for God, and it's about the circular reasoning of atheists. It's by Carson Wittenauer, and I, this might be an excerpt from a book. Uh, it seems to indicate – so that might be Atheism, Agnosticism, and the New Atheists. But anyway, it's about circular reasoning. So you know, Kirk, how we're always hearing about how Christians use circular reasoning and all that. So he points out some what's really circular reasoning about atheistic ideas. We don't use so circular let's see reasoning. Here. It says, uh, he says, there's no doubt about a circular re- that circular reasoning is illogical and irrational. So when Christians use this fallacious method to establish their points, that is unpersuasive, embarrassing, and worthy of criticism. What is circular reasoning? Well, he says dictionary.com defines it as a use of reason in which the premises depend on or are equivalent to the conclusion, a method of false logic by which this is used to prove that and that is used to prove this, also called circular logic. Now, he gives this famous example of circular reasoning. Can you can you guess what it is, Kirk? Uh Probably something along the lines of um, God did it. Well, how do we know that? Because he said he did. Well, how do we know he said he did because he did it or something like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's, it's close. It's They usually hear it as the Bible. The Bible says it was written by God, right? How do we know God right. exists? Because the Bible says he does and it wouldn't lie. Why wouldn't it lie? Because God doesn't lie. Right, so that's circular. But circular how do we reasoning. how do we know so, that? Because the Bible tells um, us. You know, the interesting us. thing is, as many times as I've heard criticism of this by atheists, I've never actually heard this argument used by a Christian. So, no. atheists will say, uh, "Yeah, Christians do this. They 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 use circular reasoning." But I've never heard a Christian actually use that as an argument. The only time I've ever heard that argument is when atheists are using it to claim that Christians say that. So, But anyway, he says a common example is, uh, the Bible says it is the word of God, God only tells the truth, therefore the Bible is entirely true. So so he says, even though these statements look sort of kind of like an argument, it really is just restating the same thing over and over again in different ways. The conclusion, the Bible is entirely true, is required to affirm the premises. Now, there are good reasons to think the Bible is true, but this argument isn't one of them. <laughs> so then he goes on to talk about circular reasoning from atheists. So he says, first, a necessary disclaimer. Many, many atheists avoid circular reasoning. Many atheists reason well. This article is not a personal attack on all atheists. So uh, that's clear. But here he gives some examples. So on the Argument about miracles, all right? So here is the atheistic argument about whether miracles are evidence or not. There is no God. Miracles are a supernatural work of God. Therefore, miracles are impossible. The Bible contains reports of miracles. Therefore, the Bible contains legendary material and historical misrepresentations. Therefore, the Bible cannot be trusted. Therefore, there is no evidence for God. Therefore, there is no God. So, see, you're right back at the beginning again. 
therefore there is no God, and you go through all this, therefore there is no God. So, so that's uh, an example, and I've heard that before. So they're basically assuming that miracles can't happen, therefore there is no God. But the only reason miracles can happen is because there's no God. If there is a God, then miracles can happen. So if you see miracles, they are evidence that God exists. <laughs> so then on the, the idea of ex- the experience of God, right? Do people experience God's presence in their personal lives? Here's a, a common way that an atheist would argue. Uh, number one, God does not exist. Therefore, God does not personally reveal his existence to people. When people think they are having experiences of God, this experience can be fully explained in terms of naturalistic causation using scientific terms, particularly through neurological studies. Therefore, people do not have experiences of God. Therefore, testimonies of God's existence do not prove that God exists. Therefore, God does not exist, right? So that's the kind of thing that's going on. I think I'm starting to get a headache. Yeah, you're going round and round, right? Here's one more. This one I thought was very good. Uh, This is about what they'll say about fear of hell, right? How Christians are motivated by fear of hell. So they'll say evangelical Christians are controlled by irrational forces. Therefore, they are no longer able to reason. Therefore, their beliefs are not based on reason. Therefore, we can reject their beliefs as false. Therefore, their belief in the existence of heaven and hell is irrational. Therefore, evangelical Christians are controlled by irrational beliefs. But that was what they started out with, right? They start out by defining fear of hell or heaven as a reward as being irrational in the first place. So... That's funny, too, because when I became a Christian, I wasn't even thinking about heaven or hell. I, I was just thinking about, you know, the Bible and what it says, and is this stuff true or isn't it? I wasn't thinking about, you know, am I going to go to hell? or I didn't think about that until much later. Yeah, I, I, I don't know too many Christians that are really focused all that much. Some are. Actually, some people that, I guess, atheists that were asking a lot of questions about I've run into those and the reason they're asking so many questions is because they're afraid of hell you know I've had atheists come out and tell me that they were afraid of hell and that was why they wanted to become a Christian and I tried to tell them um, it, yeah uh, the, a better reason would be because it's true yeah. so. I know a lot of students at college um, they're just afraid of the idea of hell and what I tell them is that's not the point the point is is that God wants to spend eternity with you that he's in love with you and what hell is is eternity without God right. and that he loves you so much that he came down and died for you and that he wants to spend all eternity with you yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the, um, but, you know, that's, uh, I guess there are some Christians that are motivated uh, by fear of hell. So then he gives a final kind of overall argument for circular argument that atheists will use, uh, and that is atheism equals reason. Religion equals unreason. That is, why is atheism true? Because it's reasonable. Why is it reasonable? Because it isn't faith. What happens if you reject faith? You think atheism is true, right? So just a, another circular argument. What I, what I think it's, it's irrational is that um, some people or some atheists just say that um, the world just became 
I mean, that's oh, basically, right. that's basically what is irrational is that the world just was. But yeah, for the universe just popped out of nowhere, out of nowhere, with it's, no cause. Exactly. Right. It's, it's like having this chair, and you come in, you come in contact with this chair, and just say, "Oh, don't worry about it. It was just there." Right. You know, someone put that there. You know? Right. And things like life just uh, appeared, and things like that. And we'll be talking about some of that as we get into our topic on evolution. But we have a MythBusters segment. Yes, we do. And actually, it ties in a little bit with what you're talking about as far as circular reasoning. Cool. Today, we are going to bust the myth of scientism. Not science, scientism. There's a difference. Now, what exactly is scientism? Well, I'll try to explain that to you. There's actually a few different ways that we can describe this, but you really end up in the same place with all these definitions. But let me give you a couple ideas about what scientism is. Uh, scientism is often defined as a term used to refer to belief in the universal applicability of the scientific method and the view that empirical science constitutes the most authoritative worldview or most valuable part of human learning to the exclusion of all other viewpoints. Right. Okay? Now, another way you could say that is that scientism is a dogma, in essence, it sees science as the absolute and only justifiable access to the truth. Right. All right. Now, we could put this a little differently and say it's also described as the dogmatic endorsement of scientific methodology and the reduction of all knowledge to only that which is measurable. Now, uh, an author named E.F. Schumacher in his book called A Guide for the Perplexed, that sounds like a neat book. Um, yeah, cool. Criticize scientism as an impoverished worldview confined solely to what can be counted, measured, and weighed. The architects of the, this modern worldview believe if it can't be counted, then it doesn't count. Okay? Ugh. Now, here's, here's the part. I was thinking this way. You were talking about circular reasoning. Here's where the circular reasoning comes in. If you subscribe to scientism, which basically says it's the same as materialism, which says that anything that isn't physical really doesn't exist. Right. Okay? So if you believe that, then you don't believe that human beings have a soul or a spirit. They just have a brain, which is a physical organ in your head that has little electrical impulses popping off all the time, but there's nothing there other than that, right? Right. Okay, so if you believe that, then there's really no way for you to say that you know anything about reality or truth or you can reason anything out because all you're doing is simply responding to whatever electrical impulses are firing off in your brain. So how do you know that any of that is true? Right, right. You don't. So when an atheism... Your, your statement being true already. Right. Basically, if you have an atheist that believes in scientism, you know, that only what is material and what we can f see and touch and measure is real, and he says atheism is rational, well, that's really a circular argument because how, do you, how can you say that it's rational when you're saying that you really have nothing other than electrical impulses going off in your head telling right. you this, that, or the other thing? Right. Yeah, all you know is what you're being told, and you could be being told a lie. Sure. Right. You know, there, there's no way to, to, to reason out whether what your brain is telling you is um, applicable to what's real or not. 
Right. So, you know, to to say that it's rational or reasonable is really a contra- self it's self contradictory is what it is. Right. You're saying, well, I'm a reasonable, rational person, but I have no basis for saying that I'm reasonable and rational because all I have is a brain in my head that tells me what it wants to tell me. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's it's fizzing. It's chemically firing, uh, just as just by chemical reaction only. Right. Cool. So, it, so you're really denying any kind of intellectual, rational, reasonable process exists. Right. Right. So is all that, right, very good. Well, if you are just listening to us, you if you just joined us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Kirk Hastings, and I'm Casper Oliver, and we are going to be talking about evolution. So. Kirk, I think we should start out by going over the definition of micro and macro evolution because I think this really helps to solidify the whole idea. If you don't understand the difference between micro and macro evolution, you're always going to be confused by evolution and the arguments for and against. So I think it's very important that we go over this. That is a good place to start because that's that's really when I first heard those terms, it's what really cleared it up for me. I read a book uh, by Philip Johnson called Darwin on Trial where Ah. he described micro and macro evolution and the difference between them, and that really cleared the whole situation up for me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to point out that this is not a terminology that was invented by Christians or creationists. Um, you know, this is an evolutionary term, and it's been in long usage at, at least uh, since Theodosius Dobzhansky in the 1960s, who was probably the leading evolutionary biologist of the day and wrote many books on the topic. Right. And so he disti- distinguished between two types of evolution microevolution and macroevolution. So Basically, microevolution is small changes amongst organisms that do not add any new information. So they either just stay with the same amount of information or they lose information. And macroevolution is changes where they, the organism gains new information. So that's the basic difference. You could so, also describe the difference as microevolution being simple adaptation to your environment based on traits that you already have. Yes, that's right. Or, yeah, that's right. Right. And macroevolution would be one species somehow changing into a totally different species. Yes, yeah. By mutation or whatever you want to ascribe to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh that is the basic difference. It's um you know, so microevolution is um, natural selection. It's the process of natural selection, right? We see it going on. We would uh, adaptation is a great, useful term for it. Um, so it's uh, you know it, it produces variety in the existing gene pool. Okay, so right. what's a gene pool? All right, a gene pool is all of the genetic information that's available to a specific kind of organism. And it's more than the genetic information that would be in any single organism or single representation of a type of animal. So let's say Casper over here is an example of a human being, right, homo sapien. Okay, are there 
genes in the the human gene pool that Casper does not have inside his body? Yes, there are, right? Casper is only one example of human genes, okay? So there's genes that he doesn't have um, that other human beings do have. Would, okay. would we be able to use as an example of that if I have this, if I understand this correctly? I don't know what um, color Casper's hair is, but I'm going to assume it's dark or brown. Right. We can say that he doesn't have the gene for red hair. Probably not. That's right. Yeah, that would be a good example. Okay. So he might actually be, now he might have it and it's turned off. I suppose that's a possibility. Right. But uh, it's certainly not being expressed, and it's very likely that he doesn't have it at all. So if we had the money and time, we could pull a sample of his DNA and search it and see if that genetic information to make red hair was there or not. Right. So That would be interesting. Yeah. So, um, But the other thing that's interesting is that Casper does have more genetic information in him than it takes to build him. So he's got a lot of genetic information that's actually stored away and is turned off. Right. So now this might come out later in his children. So if he has children and maybe he has a child who is seven feet tall, right? Basketball. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be good, right? Going to pay for dad's retirement. retirement. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's not necessarily true that all of that height came from his mother, Right, It could have actually come from the father, but it was turned off and wasn't used. Right. So, Or any other uh, genetic trait that you want to think about. Casper's got lots of genetic traits inside him that are just not being used right now. He's not personally using them. But maybe his great-great-great-great-grandchild might use some genetic information in the future that came from Casper. Sure. So even though he doesn't have red hair, he might have a gene for red hair that's turned off that his son might inherit and his son might have red hair. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So uh, so that's a possibility. And the reason I bring that up is because of the importance of things like turning on and off genes. That's very important to realize that that is not an evolutionary change. That kind of genetic change that we might see in, say, rabbits or dogs, uh, dog breeds changing, that's all just microevolution, all changes within a kind. This has nothing to do with new information being added or mutations happening to create genetic information that wasn't there before. Right, that we would term as macroevolution. And that's the real question. See, the, the whole thing is that Christians believe in microevolution. Now, right. of course, uh, some Christians, of course, believe in macroevolution, but I'm saying that at least creationists believe in microevolution. They believe that species do change over time. Sure. We believe in adaptation, and we believe in genetic change. And we also believe all the evidence that is used to support evolution, that that is really showing microevolution and you just can't get these processes that are degrading information or turning on and off information that doesn't equate to creating brand new information that wasn't there before and that's what right. you would have to have in order to get evolution right so oh you know there was a uh, point i wanted to squeeze in here too because i think it fits in um I, I just recently learned, you know how you, we've always heard about recessive genes? 
So you hear about dominant genes and recessive genes, right? Right. Okay, so that's a kind of a normal part of what we learn about uh, biology or genetics when we're growing up. Did you know, Kirk, that recessive genes are all examples of broken genes? Never knew. Mm-hmm. Never thought the of it. The reason that way. they're recessive is because they're broken. They do not work properly. So they are genes that have decayed and they may be only partially expressed, right? It may be a problem with the amount of production that they are, uh, you know, only producing small amounts of proteins that they should be producing large amounts of proteins. Or it could be that they're completely off, that they're just broken, shut down, and they do not work at all. That is what it makes recessive genes. So, um, so we have actually experience the decay of genetic information uh, you know all our lives we've been told about dominant and recessive genes and those recessive genes are recessive because they have been mutated and broken they no longer carry the information they once did and so they don't work and that's what causes a lot of the changes in humans and in also in animals would this or be plants, the, for that matter would this be the kind of thing that causes like physical handicaps Oh yeah, lots of lots of times some disease processes are due to recessive genes, uh, you know, coming into expression. Because let's say that two parents have a broken uh, gene side. The the it, you have two sides of the same genes. They're called alleles, right? So each side is an allele. So they have a a working allele and a broken allele. Right. So they can function fairly normally. Right, but let's say they get married and the two broken sides come together in their child. Now that child only has two broken alleles. Right, Th- that may produce a disease process. So because that gene is now completely shut down because it doesn't even have the other side of it to work properly. Right. So those res- those types of recessive genes, those are broken, and that is why they are recessive. Uh, I'm thinking uh, in terms of uh, my wife is as an elementary school teacher, and uh, it seems like in the last few years she's seen an awful lot of kids with really strange allergies, like allergies to peanuts or allergies to peppermint or whatever, and 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 these are like really bad allergies. Like if they have one peanut, it could kill them, type of thing. It, it, could we attribute that sort of thing to these broken genes that you're talking about? You know, we I think we asked that question to the geneticist Robert Carter when he was on the show, and he did not seem to think that that was the case. Oh, okay. um, so that may be more to do with the immune system and the fact that children are being a little bit more protected from the environment early on when their body is learning to create antibodies and learn to identify some of these antigens and things that can attack the body. Oh, yeah, I do remember him talking about that. Right, so the old way of letting your kids play outdoors and eat dirt, that actually helped them to have a normal immune system. But now that they sit inside and play video games all day and they don't eat dirt, then they don't develop... uh defenses against these things that's right and so then later when they're exposed later on it becomes a serious problem because the immune system overreacts and goes into basically and tells the body to shut down right so so okay got it okay kirk how are you hearing us over there we hear you a little bit staticky are we coming in nice and clear you're fine okay good all right so you trying to give me some static here 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, you're giving it to us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm giving you static. Huh? <laughs> now, people might have also heard of the concept of cryptic genes, and these are hidden genes, right? And these are genes or suites of genes or modules of genetic information that have been turned off and are essentially being stored by the species, by the organism, for future use in case of climate change. So so that's another thing that shows, and this is all, again, has to do with microevolution. Then there are other things that can cause microevolution. For instance, copying errors, you know, those kinds of mistakes can cause changes through lost information or the broken genes that we were talking about. So mutations that cause damage to a gene, those are microevolution. Now, uh, when we use the word mutation, we, what we mean by that is any kind of change. So unfortunately, the, kind of, the word mutation where you'd think of, well, that's a, you know, that means change or damage to a gene, but the, that has come to mean all types of change in DNA. So even this very natural kind of turning on and off of genetic information, that is called a mutation. So when you read about it in the literature, you'd be reading about a mutation, they, that does not necessarily mean that it is an error. It can actually be a mutation, a change that was deliberately caused by the organism trying to change its offspring in order to survive. And this usually happens when the organism is going through stress and it will actually turn on genetic information in the sex cells, the gametes, the the, um, germ cells, so that its offspring will have a better chance of surviving. Well, this again, this sounds like simple adaptation you're talking about. Yeah, again, yeah. So this is all fitting under, I'm just, you know, we're trying to get across the point of what is microevolution. And the reason that's so important is because microevolution does not prove macroevolution. You cannot take a fish and build a fisherman out of a fish by damaging its genes, <laughs> right? Or turning on and off the genes that are already there. And that's so what a lot of evolutionists, a lot of evolutionists believe that. They believe that if you get enough microevolution, it will lead to macroevolution. Yeah, but you're that's saying right. so that's why we've got to be careful about how we define micro and macroevolution. So I think it's a mistake to say that microevolution is small change and macroevolution is large change because right. someone will just say okay but if i add up a whole bunch of small changes don't i get large change right i mean that's how evolutionists lie to you that's how they get you to believe in macroevolution they show you evidence for microevolution and they say look at these small changes can you imagine what we will get if we add up all these small changes we will get big changes over a long period of time. Well, that's just false. That's a false way of looking at it. Because we're talking about total, two totally different types of processes here. That's right. Two, two totally different types of processes. So imagine yourself, you are in the stairwell of a skyscraper, okay? And you are walking downstairs, and someone asks, how long is it going to be until we get to the roof? Well, what do you mean, get to the roof? We're walking downstairs. We're not walking upstairs. We are never going to get to the roof. Right. So how much time would it take 
walking downstairs in a skyscraper to get to the roof. You will never get there. So the same thing with microevolution turning into macroevolution. Microevolution will never turn into macroevolution. Because microevolution is essentially loss of information. You got it. So the question is, where do we get new information? That's what we want to know. Right. How do we get new information to turn a dinosaur into a bird? Right. Right. To turn a monkey into a human. Where does that new information come from? And I think um, I think it's just it's crazy how um, students in, in college they 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 trust these these um, professors who try to get this little little microevolution to get to macroevolution, and you have these students they're trusting these these professors and they're telling them, oh yeah, they, we'll get closer and closer and closer and closer to human. You know, if we have enough microevolution, like from apes or, or from monkeys or chimps, if we get closer and closer and closer, then it kind of closes that little gap to a human. Or That's maybe, right. Or maybe um, to another another species. But um, it, it's just crazy. We were talking about whales earlier, you know, um, from a, a, a fish going onto land. But as for a whale, it's the opposite. It's actually a, a whale who is a mammal and right. um, has those characteristics. Right, yeah. How do you get from a land mammal to an ocean-going mammal with all the incredible new kind of information that you're going to need? I mean, if evolution was supposed to be, you know, getting better and better and better, why is it that they're going back to where they came from? Right, right. So, all right, so let's talk about macroevolution then. And I guess uh, before we do that, We'll remind everybody, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Casper Oliver. All right. So what is macroevolution? And I think we beat the microevolution thing to death. So what's macroevolution? Okay. Macroevolution is the theoretical addition of new genetic information to a gene pool. Now, did you notice that I used the word theoretical? Uh-huh. That is the only point in evolution that ha- remains unproven, right? Everybody agrees with microevolution. Everybody agrees animals change and plants change over time. Everyone agrees that information can be lost, genes can be turned on and off. Everyone agrees with natural selection, that those changes that happen to be good will survive and those changes which happen to be bad will die off. Everyone agrees with that. That's not the argument. The whole crux of the evolutionary argument is right here, macroevolution. Where does the new information come from? I find it interesting, too, that even the term natural selection assumes that you have a choice of things to select from that are already there. That Yeah, natural, of course. Yeah, that's right. Natural, uh, natural selection is not the mutation process. It's not the change process. It's the weeding out process. Right. So, and uh, the idea has always been that if you had enough good changes, you would, they would result in big good changes, right? And, and if you ever ask your professor, you know, how come I don't see evolution now? They will say to you, well, you have to wait long enough. Human beings just have short lifespans, and even uh, the few thousand years that we have of recorded history isn't long enough to see evolution in action, they will say. But that's still going by the hypothesis that small changes can become big changes. But small downward changes can never become upward changes. That reminds me of the question, um, why aren't chimps 
evolving into humans now. And they That's try right. To, they, what they try to do is they'll try, well, there was a common ancestor that they had when they split up when chimps went one way and humans went another, but they will never tell you um, where that split was or what that species was named was, that animal was. And that's what they're trying to figure out now, the missing link, and they will never find it. They can never find it. Right. They'll say that it has uh, gone extinct. Well, but then you're still stuck with the question, why doesn't a new version of that middle species come into existence from chimps now? So you still have, just because, um, you know, it's maybe it's too large of a, a gap to jump from chimp to human, you still don't have uh, something in between, right? And, and according to evolutionary process, you should be seeing these things all the time. Certainly, Charles Darwin thought that you would see them uh, and that the... Uh, fossil record would would uh, provide that information. Well, I don't know. I know some people that I could make a pretty good argument for the idea that they're halfway between a chimp and a human. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you're not talking about your current boss, are you? No, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you want to keep your job, right? All right. So the information needed to make a new type of organ, that's what we're talking about, right? Or maybe to build a wing, right? If you're talking about how to turn a dinosaur into a bird, you have to have the information of how to make a wing right or maybe some kind of new biochemical pathway something <laughs> like that those are the those are the kinds you of things you need um and you know talking about the example of dinosaurs becoming birds just look at the differences between dinosaurs and birds i mean you need a completely different kind of skeletal system okay because birds uh, bones are completely different they're very lightweight meant for flying um, you need a completely different kind of respiratory system. Birds have a very different respiratory system, and any kind of intermediate pathway between a reptile respiratory system and a bird respiratory system won't work. You can't get there from there. It'll be a type of respiratory system that doesn't function. That's very interesting because I know in college they teach you about the archaeopteryx. Uh, ar- what's it called? Archaeopteryx. Archaeopteryx. Yeah. Yeah, and they they try to show um, you know that middle. Um, I guess that middle species or that middle animal, that one that separates, you know, from dino. They try to fill that gap in from dinosaur to bird. That's right. Trying to figure out with the with feathers and with the um, the breastbone and everything. But um, actually, I just learned that right now, as you just told me. And Kyle, um, college students, they know because they're that's what the archaeopteryx. That's what's being taught now to college students. Right. And that has helped to kind of promote this idea that birds came from dinosaurs. Yeah, you know, in the fossil record, you find fully developed birds in the same layers as dinosaurs. Um, They don't tell you that. Uh, That's what I was going to say, that they found uh, fossil birds that are in rocks that are older than Archaeopteryx. So how did that happen? How did that work? (laughs) Archaeopteryx is not a intermediary. Right. Really, what you have, I mean, Archaeopteryx, as far as we can tell, is a real bird. It actually could fly. It has bird-like skeleton. It has bird-like respiratory system, as best we can tell. It has feathers. Right. You know, it's got wings. It does have some additional features that most birds don't have that make it sort of look um, reptile-like. For instance, it has a, a tail, right? It has a spinal column that's... Um, similar to what a dinosaur has. It has uh, teeth, right? Most birds have just a beak. Uh, It has claws on the end of its uh, wings. So um, those features make it look sort of dinosaur-like, 
But ask yourself this. You know, if you can breed a dog that looks cat-like, does that mean that that particular breed of dog was the intermediary between cats and dogs? (laughs) Right? No. It would just be a dog that looks very cat-like. I mean, what if you could get a dog um you could I, I could imagine that you could breed a dog that looked very much bear like like a brown bear you know big heavy body uh thick legs um you know the dogs already have kind of that nose from a bear in fact i know of the reason i picked that is because i know of uh, a geneticist who thinks that bears and dogs actually do belong in the same uh, gene pool that in the past they may have shared the same gene pool um so that's possible. But anyway, um, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about with micro and macro evolution. They're completely different things. And by confusing the two concepts, by not keeping those clear and by not teaching how different they are, then evolutionists will use the evidence for one to try to prove the other. They will use all the evidence for microevolution, which there's plenty of it. You know, there's plenty of evolution for microevolution. Microevolution is what's really happening. That's what's really happening in the real world. Everyone agrees with it. No one disagrees that I know of. There is not a single creationist or Christian or anyone who believes in a fixity of species. We all believe in adaptation, natural selection, changes on a micro level. Um, it's the macro evolution that they're trying to prove, and there is no evidence for that. We don't have any examples of new genetic information appearing that wasn't there already. Some have tried to put it forward, right? They've said, oh, look at this. This is something completely new. For instance, they have an example of a reptile that began giving live birth instead of laying eggs like reptiles normally do. But what was later discovered by examining the DNA is that this was just a case of the reptile actually turning on genetic information that was already there. So the reptile had the genetic information for both laying eggs and giving live birth, and it only mattered which set of information was turned on and which was turned off. So you can imagine that God put all that information into the same type of animal in order for it to be able to adapt to a changing environment and climate change, which we know has happened you know, over thousands and thousands of years. Things have gotten really hot. Things have gotten really cold. Um, animals are moving into new environments, looking for new food sources. And they have to, if they're going to survive, they have to be able to adapt. And so God made them to be able to adapt. And what really we're talking about is self-engineering. The DNA is designed to re-engineer itself, right? Everybody here has heard about genetic re-engineering, right? We can go in and, you know, take somebody's DNA and change it and make something different. That's already happening. God already designed the DNA to do that itself. I have a question. Yeah. Um, is it true, actually, um, that three or four people, if you were to get three or four people, um, they would have the same genetic information as all the people around the world? Oh, I don't know if that's true. Remember um, about that at the conference that we went to? No, I don't remember that. Um, you know, I know, I know there are certain parts of the world people have more genetic diversity than other parts. Mm. Um, in fact, this is one of the ways how they are able to track 
the migration of human beings across the planet. Mm. So the reason why is because I mean, if you get like three, you know, three or four animals, you know, together, mm -hmm. I mean, they have just so much genetic information that's already there, mm -hmm. you know, and then just to provide offspring, you know, they would, um, you know, they already have the genetic information already there, you know, to adapt. So, right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't take it doesn't take you know millions and millions of years. It could just happen in one generation. Oh, very quickly, very quickly. You know, I can have a, a child, you know, that's white, you know, and 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 you know, totally different. That looks totally different from me, you know, and that's just in one one generation. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, sometimes, of course, it takes longer than that. But Some, yes. uh, I read about an article where recently a Russian geneticist had worked on domesticating foxes. Now, foxes are in the uh, dog family, right? They're a, they're a canidae, and they've never successfully been domesticated. So what he did was wanted to see if he could recognize visual markers that, that would allow him to breed for domesticity. And he was. He found that white patches on the face and I think a curly tail were indicators that so they were they were part of the ge same genetic suite that controlled the behavior of the dog and so uh, I think he said it took 17 generations so by screening out only for foxes with the curly tail and with the white spot on the forehead they were able to domesticate fully domesticate a fox so that it's like a pet dog the, re the reason why I was I was asking because you know Noah's Ark uh, with Noah's Ark with all the animals, and they right. could have one animal, just say, like, a, a pair of triceratops. Or, yeah, a triceratops, they could have one horn, you know, three horns, or two horns. Oh, exactly. Lots of variation. A lot of variations. Right. You, know, you can have one dog, and it's, it has just so much genetic information. that it could, it could have a white dog, a yellow dog, a black dog, right. with one or Big one dog, pair. small dog. Exactly. Curly tail, mm -hmm. straight tail, no tail, uh, long snout, short snout, you know, Folds of skin, tight skin, hairless dogs, yes. you know, on and on and on. You just can, yeah, exactly. Well, this idea of dinosaurs changing in the birds, I'm trying to picture a Tyrannosaurus Rex with wings, and it's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. See, yeah. uh, and, and you know what's funny is that if evolu evolution were true, that's the kind of thing you would expect to see in the fossil record. <laughs> but we don't. So, so, you know, all that kind of... Evidence if just try to think in your upbringing, in your education, when you were taught the evidences for evolution, what are the kinds of things you were taught about? All of them involved microevolution. So, you know, bacterial resistance, right? Or peppered moths. And we're going to get into those, looks like next week. Well, actually, I think we have a guest on for next week. But the week after, we'll get into some of those uh, specific issues. But those are all actually examples of micro evolution so casper i could somebody could ask you at school do you believe in evolution well, what would you say i would say i believe in micro evolution but i do not believe in macro evolution yeah there you go that's see that's being more specific because without clarifying it you don't know what the person is talking about i mean you could actually say yes i believe in evolution right yeah. or you could say no i don't believe in evolution so, so that's the. But they're probably when they say when most people say evolution, they, they probably the mean yeah the macro evolution. But macro evolution is the mythical evolution. It's the magic evolution, right? Where information just pops out of nowhere from without any intelligence. 
Well, I just read an article in the newspaper recently where a, a scientist was asked about evolution, and he defined evolution as change over time. And I'm like, okay, well, that's generalized enough. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. if that's your definition of evolution, then yes, I agree with that. Change over time, absolutely. Right, but that's so that's so broad a definition. It could, you know, it, it, it almost doesn't mean anything because it's so generalized. <laughs> That's right. The The real crux of the issue is what kind of change are you talking about? Right. Are you talking about downward change, lateral change, or are you talking about an upward change? Right. And, and that's why I think it's funny when you're, you know, you're sitting around a coffee table or something and somebody's talking, they're saying, you know, I wonder what human beings are going to be like in the future, right? What Are we going to be those big brain things? You know, what are we going to change into? Well, one thing for sure we know is that we're not going to gain any new information, right? Because there isn't, where's it going to come from? Unless we, we write it ourselves, we might be able to write our own code and implant it into the DNA, but it will have to come from an intelligent source. You're never going to get information from a random, non-intelligent source. You know, books don't write themselves. Cars don't build themselves, right? Computer systems don't build themselves. Right. So uh, next time when we get into this, we're going to go over the micro, the evidence for microevolution and how it has been discredited. It does not support macroevolution. We're going to talk about uh, – Casper, you want to say something? Uh, yeah. Um, I just wanted to say something real quick. Um, any um, student or any college student out there, if you're trying to um, – if you actually want to see the evidence for evolution or um, against evolution, I definitely suggest look up the podcasts. Um, that Keith have on evolution and also um, check out um, creationministriesinternational.com and you can go there and you could see, um, you know, the other side that um, you're not being taught. So um, do your research, definitely. Oh, cool. Yeah, good, uh, good advice. So we will be talking about uh, Darwin's finch beaks, right? Darwin's finches. Uh, that is the change in the shape and size of the beaks that was used as evidence. Uh, peppered maws. Everybody remembers about the dark and light-colored peppered moths. The, one of the new ones that they're using is whale evolution, and that's because, really, a lot of the other evidences have fallen by the wayside. They've been shown to not show actual evolution, or they have been shown to be frauds. Um, for instance, the Haeckel's embryos are now known to be frauds. It only took 150 years for people to find that out, and it <laughs> still a lot of people actually... Um, antibiotic resistance, that's one of the newer ones, but you don't hear about it much anymore because it's been discredited. Um, Darwin's Tree of Life, right? Those, those drawings that we saw in textbooks. Um, you know, chimp DNA, the idea about homology, different bone structures being similar or features being similar, that that's proof of evolution. And the big one, of course, is fossil record. And we're going to show how that has been debunked. So, Kirk, any final word? No, I think that about covers it. Well, then let's uh, remind people that they have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Or you can quest you can send questions on the Facebook page, like us on Facebook. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!